I'm extremely confident that every stake pool on Solana is going to use it in some form or another. The Gita Solana client was built. A lot of stake pools and stakers and uh, validators are running that. I think StakeNet's going to be another one of those things that like every single stake pool on Solana is going to use StakeNet. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that, like Dan and I, you believe the future of finance is on the blockchain. And we're excited that London is becoming a global hub for blockchain innovation and institutional adoption of digital assets. That's why we're pumped to host the 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. Later in this episode, we'll tell you how you can save 20% off on your ticket. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We are joined today by Lucas Bruder, the co-founder and CEO of Jito Labs. Lucas, thanks for joining us, man. And big congrats on the token launch. Obviously, it's a huge milestone for not only you and your team, but also the broader Solana community. It feels like morale is probably at all-time highs right now. <laughs> and yeah. one, of the, one of the cool takeaways I actually had from this was Brian, the uh, COO of Jito Labs, had an awesome thread that that highlighted the level of coordination that really went on between your team and other development teams within the Solana ecosystem. There was decentralized exchanges, even centralized exchanges, lending markets, wallet providers. Pretty much everybody in the ecosystem had to be on point and be ready for this. Can you just talk a little bit about what that organization, what, like how that was all orchestrated and really just the effort required to make this thing happen flawlessly as it did? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on first off. Super excited to be back here. Yeah, it's just like really cool to see the like the community and the ecosystem rally around this. I think there's a lot of reach out and um, coordination that goes into these launches. And so you have like Phantom doing the the Gito airdrop notification and Soulflare as well, and the banner on Jupiter. And there's a lot of other people that were involved. So apologies for forgetting any names here, but. Yeah, it's just cool to see people are DMing you and asking how to help. And I think for the first time in a while, it feels like the Solana ecosystem is like really shining right now. And that was like one of the goals of doing this entire thing, the way that it, it went down. And so it's just it just blew like all of our expectations and like the attention on Solana is like super high right now. So it's just really exciting to be building on Solana right now. Yeah, I can only imagine how big of a weight off your shoulders that was. I'm sure got to catch up on sleep over the weekend, hopefully. But I have seen a lot of takes on Twitter saying, oh, like projects that are doing points programs need to take into account the cyber activity post Gito airdrop and more heavily weight on activity that was done before. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's in any ecosystem, especially one that that have a lot of pre-token protocols, I think there's always going to be like mercenary capital and Sybils where these people are just in it for the airdrop and they will spin up like tens to hundreds of wallets. And you see it a lot more on the L1s and some of the newer L2s where people are running these like massive farms that are just uh, generating like fake activity. That was definitely like somewhat the case during like before the Gito airdrop. But if you look at the stats now from Margin Phi, Zeta, Drift, there's like record signup numbers coming in. I think a lot of it is actually like new users. In there, there's definitely a lot of bots that are coming in. And to Technic, that activity is extremely hard. I think it's definitely gotten worse. So I think that the game's definitely changed for those protocols. So I think they need to think very hard about the activity they're uh, rewarding trying not to uh, leak too many, uh, too much of the airdrop and the governance power to like civil actors. And yeah, like Tushar's point, like try to focus on just keep continuing to build a good product and ignore all the noise that these like these people are bringing. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, in a time when there's been all this infighting as well, it's glad to hear and see that the there was a little bit of a different change of pace over in this ecosystem. And I, I definitely agree with your point, like though, there's, there's full-scale legitimate cyber farms these days, and that's just a crazy thing you have to deal with now. I yeah. can imagine being on one of these L2 teams that like, seriously have millions of transactions a day that are from these cyber farms. Like, that's got to be a really hard thing to deal with. But on the other side, especially on the L2 side, not to go off on a tangent here, but a lot of that activity is like proving that your tech does what you want your tech to be able to do. So it's I don't know. You can, in some ways, it's like they're <laughs> yeah. still providing value. Yeah. No, for sure. You can, it's the people that are good at it are really good and it's hard to detect that activity. And I think there's, 
I don't know if there's any right way to do the airdrop. Everyone has their own opinion. I think no matter what di- no matter what way you do it, some people will be very excited, some will be angry, and that's just like the way that that it goes. But I think that it's definitely going to accelerate, and teams definitely need to think about that a lot. And potentially, you can feel free to ask us for help and ask others for help. And yeah, I think there's a it's the game's definitely changed. Yeah, I want to double down on anything in life. There will always be people that will be mad at you. But I, yeah. uh, we've got a good question list lined up for you today, really centered around MEV, the Jito Solana client, and kind of how those two intertwine. Jito Sol, of course, and then a couple of like broader Solana questions, but maybe we can kick things off on more of the MEV side. Huge uptick in activity recently on Solana. How have you seen the MEV landscape kind of shift or, or change or develop and mature over time and just like these last few months with the, the new wave of activity? Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of, there's a lot more volume. I think a few days ago, Solana, what it, was it, did it do 70% of Ethereum volume or something? Yeah. If you look at like the, the volume charts over the past few months, I think Solana was doing like, um, in the range of like 20 to $50 million of volume a few months ago. Now it's doing like hundreds of millions to like a billion dollars. So with that, there's a lot more arbitrages. It's the fee on the fees on Solana are so low that basically like any trade is there's a high likelihood that any trade will result in some type of arbitrage available. So you're seeing a lot of that. You're definitely seeing a lot of a lot of volume generated by that. There's definitely a lot of blocks that are getting filled up pretty fast here and some room for improvement on fees. I think probably dive into that a little bit later. But yeah, there's and then we're seeing the block engine and like the Gita Solana Valdir client is seeing a lot more MEV going through it in the past uh, few days. So there's a lot of like all hands on deck, making sure it's reliable, able to handle the load and giving a, a good service to the traders and searchers that are using it. I think also one more thing to mention is that we're seeing a lot more market maker interest on some of the order books on Solana, whether it's like Orca or Phoenix. So you're seeing some people that are that were previously out of the game for a bit that are coming back in. And then we're also seeing some newer participants that are coming in and starting to provide liquidity on like Phoenix and stuff like that. They're asking like, how do these bundles work? How do we trade fast? How's this network work? Like the first things that you do when you start to dive into MEV, like if you're diving into an MEV on Ethereum, you have to understand like the builders and the relayers and the timing and all this stuff. And there's a lot more question, a lot more of those questions coming in from like professional organizations. So I think that's super cool to see as well. That might be a good segue actually to understanding a little bit more about how the block engine actually creates the opportunity to capture MEV. Can you walk us through what that architecture looks like? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, basically the block engine in the relayer, it creates this rolling mempool that's super short-lived. So right now it's basically like a 200 millisecond rolling mempool and searchers are able to subscribe to these opportunities, the, basically the transactions coming in and they essentially transactions go to the relayer and then they get forwarded to the block engine and the searchers are receiving the stream of transactions. They are simulating them and doing their complex arbitrage and liquidation, whatever logic they're doing to basically figure out like, where's the MEV? Like, how can I arbitrage this? All that stuff. And then they will send a bundle or a bunch of bundles over a connection. All those get aggregated into the block engine. And there, I guess there's there's multiple block engines around the world. So there's a, a lot of communication between all these things, but it goes in, it goes into this proprietary simulation engine that we built from the ground up. And basically that will, it, it runs a periodic auction so every 200 milliseconds, it will basically spit out a list of the most profitable bundles to send to validators. And then the, the block engine will forward it. But at a high level, it's like pretty similar to the way that MEV on Ethereum works for those that are listening. I guess there's a few differences. One is that Solana is very fast and it's a 400 millisecond slot times. Every leader has multiple of uh, four leader slots back to back. It's really difficult because you'll be in Germany, Frankfurt, one second for 1.6 seconds. Then you'll be in Tokyo for 1.6 seconds. And then you'll be in New York for 1.6 seconds. 
and it's just bouncing around the globe. So coordinating, not only is like trading on that hard and you have to have, if you're like a trader and you really want to do well, you have to have like servers all over the globe, but also coordinating that on the block engine is pretty hard compared to Ethereum. It's 12 second or 13 second block times. You can send a packet around the world, like a bunch. I don't know. I don't know how many times, a lot of times before it's an issue. I think another thing that's interesting too is that there's like this big censorship issue problem on Ethereum that is getting talked about a lot recently with OFAC and just how you have a few builders that are building the entire blocks on Ethereum. That doesn't really exist on Solana. Jito can't censor transactions if the relayer is, if the validator is running these relayers. And then another thing is that Jito is building the, we call it a block engine, but it's actually just sending bundles to the validator. We're not actually building the entire block, just pieces of it. So I think that's another like pretty key difference between Ethereum and Solana MEV, where some of the issues that are present over there aren't necessarily an issue on Solana. Yeah, the block time is super, super interesting. I think it was Tim from A16Z who put out a paper basically de- declaring that uh, the MEV opportunity is like equates some, somewhere around like the square root of block time, suggesting that faster block times reduce the amount of arbitrage MEV that can really exist. And so because Solana has such fast block times, Jito's client is creating a meb pool on top of a continuous uh, transaction stream. What are the trade-offs there? And is it like fair to say that this is like slowing down some of these transactions by about 200 milliseconds? Uh, yeah, I think it is the case right now. I think that's completely tunable. I think that we want to, I think there, there's a large potential for the effects of MEV, especially on these high frequency like, or high throughput, low latency chains to really geographically centralize the network. I think you see that now in like Frankfurt and Amsterdam and especially in Tokyo, because there's a lot of sexes in Tokyo. A lot of the traders that are, a lot of the traders that we're talking to are setting up in Tokyo because that's where a lot of the servers are. So I think that one of the goals of doing this is to try to prevent the geographic centralization. Another point is it just like something that has to be done to optimize the system. And I don't think that 200, 200 milliseconds is it's a tunable number. So, you know, the new simulator, it's looking very promising. That's something you can get down to hundred milliseconds or maybe even 50 milliseconds in the future. It's all tunable. Also, yeah, every validator can run their own relayer and choose the settings that they want. I think another cool thing about Solana is that um, the uh, there's a lot of people on Solana that are like, oh, TVL is a meme. I think we all realize that like TVL is a meme. I think Tully tweeted the other day, like you only want capital on chain that's actually being used. Uh, a lot of the capital in these order books is just sitting idle and like never gets used. And I think that the because of compute, and resources are so cheap on Solana and you can do a lot more. So I think like something like a Phoenix or like a like any order book on Solana or even like Orca and Radium, I think they are just going to expose less MEV to users, which I think is a good thing. Like ultimately you want MEV to be reduced at the application layer as much as possible. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I appreciate that extra color. But you can't talk about uh, validator clients without talking about Fire Dancer. I feel like that's one of the most hyped developments for Solana in 2024 and 2025. So how does the release of Fire Dancer impact the Jito client? Yeah, I think it's TBD on when it comes out. I think it's probably people are running something called Frankendancer on Testnet right now. So Frankendancer, for those that don't know, it's basically a combination of Fire Dancer and the Solana Labs Valdair client. And it's essentially the Fire Dancer networking stack. So the Fire Dancer quick. And I'm actually not sure uh, how far up the networking stack it goes, but I know it's for sure quick is running. And then it basically like plugs into the, the current Solana Labs Valdair client for receiving transactions and processing them. So that's live on testnet. I think Fire Dancer is probably maybe a year-ish out from testnet or mainnet. I think that we're certainly keeping like pretty close eyes on the development of Fire Dancer. I think once there's some type of like transaction execution and like when you when we start to see like consensus and stuff like that go in, it, that's when it makes sense to 
start looking at it. I think Friday Dancer will definitely be easier to work on and modify. And it'll definitely be easier to plug in like Jita's specific code into Fire Dancer. Just because of the way it's built, there's multiple processes and things like that running. And it's really easy to to modify Fire Dancer compared to the Solana Labs Outer client. So I think it'll definitely be a thing. It's just a matter of when is it ready? And yeah, I think for MEV, it'll, I think Fire Dancer will be like the highest performance open source software that's ever been built. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people referencing that that are in the crypto industry and working on L1s and L2s and a lot of people that aren't. And I think it's that's super, super cool to see that happening on Solana. I think it will it, it will have some impact on MEV, I think TBD on what that looks like. But everyone's obviously very excited about Fire Dancer. Yeah, that's a really cool fact that you just mentioned, like having the most high performant tech that's ever built open source be in crypto is a really massive step forward for industry. I think I feel like that just brings in a lot more developer talent, a lot more tech junkies, people that are just like, think things are cool. Like then it's, oh, wow, look what this industry is doing. But yeah, and does that, do you think that makes a difference? If you are, you have a development background and so does many people on your team. So I'm curious, like when you try to like take yourself away from crypto and pretend like you've never found it before, why would a developer come to the Solana ecosystem versus something more like any of the other broad ecosystems, right? Cosmos, Ethereum, the L2s, any of those? Yeah, I think Solana tends to attract really like engineers that really want to dive into hard problems and work on really cool tech that I think some of the other ecosystems don't have. And that's why I got into Solana originally. I was like, oh, this just makes sense. Why don't we just use everything, every like, compute resource like RAM and caches and all the clock cycles as efficiently as possible. I think you don't really have that on some of the like other networks, you know, I don't think there's definitely a lot of people that I get excited about working on Ethereum, like the L1, but I think it, it doesn't really have that, the capability to nerd snipe people on like high performance engineering problems, unless you are like into MEV. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Perspective. Nerd sniping is probably one of crypto's best use cases. So I'd love to see that. All right, Zero X Research listeners, we're calling on you to join us for the premier institutional crypto conference in Europe's crypto capital, London, this March 2024. You're going to get to hear exclusive insights from industry trailblazers on things like leveraging DeFi protocols for institutional yield, tokenizing real world assets with instant settlement, navigating the evolving global regulatory landscape, integrating digital assets into banking and payments, or crafting institutional investment mandates with digital assets as the key focus. We'll also be featuring some big keynote speakers, including Melvin Dang, the CEO at QCP Capital, Mark Yusko, the CEO and managing partner of Morgan Creek Capital, and Stani Kluchin, the founder and CEO of Ave Companies. This is not an event you're going to want to miss. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using promo code 0x20 to save 20% on your tickets. See you in London, the land of tasty pastries, and be sure to hit up Dan and I for a beer. Pivoting a bit to Gito Soul, the LST. Growth has been up and to the right. Phenomenal growth. Even post-airdrop, still seeing a lot of that growth hang on. And one of the interesting things is a lot of that growth seems to actually have come from the deprecation of Lido Steak Soul. It seems like that was the, the clear choice of where those users were going was Gito. So I want to get your take on how that growth has been, but also there still seems so much untapped p- potential with only about 5% of the unlocked staked soul is use, is uh, like liquid stake and using these LST providers. What is Gito's yep. plan to really attract those assets into the liquid staking side of things? Yeah, so I think to your first point, yeah, the growth of GSL has seen a lot of success from Lido shutting down. I think it's a bummer that they did that, but I think in retrospect, it will probably be a poor decision. It makes sense. They're a the clear market leader on Ethereum, and I think if you spread your if you spread your company or your your team and your resources available too thin, then you can end up slipping and losing lead on the market that you're clearly winning on. I think we've seen that when some protocols go across chain and stuff like that, where they start to get a little comfortable or split on their time and attention. But yeah, I think a lot of the, a lot of the capital coming in has also been like traditional stakers as well. And some institutions that are finally starting to see the light of liquid staking. 
I think really it comes down to how do we get more people in? I think it comes down to communicating the like the safety and security of the protocols, making sure that communicating the audits and things like that. I think also explaining some of the benefits as well. You're spreading your stake across a wider network of validators. So it's making the network a little healthier. And also if you're only sticking to one validator, that validator has downtime, then you're going to take a, a yield hit where if you're spreading it across a bunch, the, the yield hit might not be as severe. I think some of the other stuff like this is a little more like hands-on, but I think starting to dive into some of the taxes and things like that and understand what do these institutions actually care about and why aren't they doing it now? Obviously not financial, legal investment advice at all, but there's some people will believe that basically swapping to from like sole to a liquid stake sole is not a taxable event. Others people, other people think thinks it is. You can work with, these institutions are starting to work with accountants and lawyers and things like that to understand that a little better. And we've seen some like good success there with people warming up to that idea. Also, there's, at least on Solana, there's some potential tax advantages with the staking rewards as well, where if you're staking normally and you're receiving staking rewards, then some depends on your accountant and your lawyer and all that stuff. But some people view the staking rewards coming in as income. And on Solana, I think on on Solana, the the GDOs on all the LSTs, they're they're reward bearing. Basically, when you deposit GDO Sol, that GDO Sol represents the Sol that you put into the stake pool, plus any accrued rewards and from staking and MEV. So like right now, I think the price of Judo Soul is like around 1.07 Soul. That will continue to go up as like the, as, as it accrues staking yield from the network. And so it's potentially way more tax efficient than just normal staking. So yeah, I think those are a few of the things that I think make sense to focus on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe this question is a little premature, but I feel like I got to ask it since we brought up Lido. But do you have any thoughts on self-limiting from the perspective of an LST provider? I think it's like too early to have that conversation. I think that, I think that StakeNet will actually help a lot here. And I think we're going to probably dive into StakeNet in a bit, but I think when you decentralize the stake pool into StakeNet, I think it changes the risk model from a self-limiting standpoint just because it's this open source algorithm and people can influence the way that it delegates and whatnot. StakeNet is definitely something I want to dive into, but right before we do that, I want to tie the validator client back to the LST. So all of Jito sole validators that they delegate to for the, the user deposits run the Jito client, but anybody mm-hmm. else can also opt into running the client as well. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And in that case, then how, what's the plan to, because at the end of the day, I feel like most, at least on-chain users, more of like the DGEN personality, like their mindset is like maximize yield. And if you can stake to a validator, because I guess there's also a difference between delegated proof of stake versus something like Ethereum, where as a user, I can just delegate my soul to an existing validator. So like, I, obviously you get the liquidity and some of the tax benefits that you mentioned, but is there any way in your mind that you can also offer a higher yield than if you were to delegate yourself? Uh, yeah, it's definitely something we're thinking about. There's a few ideas. I don't want to dive into them yet. I think it's too early, but there's a few things that are being worked on to fix that. Because yeah, I think that's another thing. It's like risk versus reward. How do you make the reward higher? And uh, I think there's some stake pools that are using the governance tokens as another incentive mechanism that can certainly work. I think it's not forever and it's a uh, pretty, those emissions can be pretty high. And I think there's several other ways to do something similar without kind of having massive inflation. So I think should expect to see more of that from us, but also some of the other like community members pretty soon. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. But I think that's probably a good point to talk a bit, set the scene for, for the stake net conversation. So bef- 
I guess is yeah, it's most helpful to probably start with what's the current architecture of Solana LST providers today. Uh, I guess maybe walk us through what it looks like when a user deposits Sol into Jito. Like where does that Sol actually flow through into the stake pool and then ultimately to the validator? And maybe if there's any like I know there's an admin and control wallet over the stake pool. So describe how that plays a role as well. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of the stake pools on Solana, they use a program called the SPL stake pool. SPL is a Solana program library. There's a lot of reference implementations of like common programs that people use on chains that this, that are in the Solana program library. One of them is the stake pool. Um, so what happens is when you're a user, you can deposit into the stake pool and it will basically give you a receipt token or like a liquid staking token. And this token represents the soul that you put in initially, plus any accrued staking rewards from consensus on the network. And then also MEV as well, if the, the stake pool is uh, staking to any MEV validator clients. And after you deposit your soul, you get back the, the liquid staking uh, token. The protocol will then basically figure out which validator to move that Solana that was put into the protocol onto a validator in their validator set. Validator set's dynamic. Every stake pool has a different size validator set. You can add and remove validators to the validator set. And yeah, basically there's some process that happens where the you figure out which validator you want to put the stake on and then that happens and then it starts accruing the yield. And so right now in Solana, the Solana program library, SPL stake pool, there's two, there's two authorities associated with that. One is the manager. The manager is the one that can set the fees. They can change manager. They can change the wallet that the fees are going to. It's like a super user. They can't steal any of the funds though. No, there's no permissions on the stake pool where you can actually like steal funds. And so, yeah, like for Gito. The manager, the authority is currently Realms DAO, which is like the DAO platform on Solana. So token holders can vote to change fees and whatnot on there. The other authority is it's called the staker. And so the staker, basically, they have the ability to take that stake. In the last example that we were talking about, they can take the stake, they can deploy it to uh, one or every validator. They split it up and move the stake around. They can pull stake off validators that are getting removed from the set, wait two days, and then put on a different validator. So they're just you can think of them just like allocating resources, allocating all the soul in the stake pool, like the resource across all these different validators. Okay, perfect. And so in that context, then you, I know you guys have been uh, allowed about this on your breakpoint presentation, but that's not true DeFi, right? There is this centralized actor that must uh, perform certain roles in order to make this all work. So talk a bit about yeah. StakeNet and how it actually unlocks that by removing uh, the central factor here. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I didn't dive into the staker that much, but I guess like the TLDR is that the staker, it's typically like a hot wallet on an AWS or GCP server. People are running data collection and storing it into a, some database and running some algorithms to figure out like this validator, maybe they did a commission rug. Maybe they, they switch data centers and the new data centers performing poorly or whatever it is. It just runs and will destake stuff and move it around. And yeah, I think that we can I think that we can do like way better than that. I think it's if you want to see liquid staking succeed and get to ten or twenty percent, I think if we were at like if GitoSol or any other liquid staking token was at like high single digits or like low double digits percent of the network and people found out that there was a central server doing it, I think people would be a little freaked out. So it's sake now is the result of thinking ahead of this and hey, there's a way better way to do this. It's going to be super hard, but I think we can figure it out. And basically StakeNet is, it's a way to decentralize the operation of the stake pool to a network of keepers. And essentially what it results in is like an ultra decentralized liquid staking protocol that in theory should like never be able to get stopped. So it's Uniswap or a lot of the protocols on Solana, like DEXs, where it's just on there forever and you can't really pause it or anything. And so, yeah, StakeNet's a result of that. And yeah, super excited to get that out pretty soon. I think 
I'm extremely confident that every stake pool on Solana is going to use it in some form or another. And so I think it's cool to, the Gita Solana client was built, a lot of stake pools and stakers and validators are running that. I think StakeNet's going to be another one of those things that like every single stake pool on Solana is going to use StakeNet. So as a data junkie here, one of the really cool things I think you guys are doing with this is the storing all of the val validator performance history on chain in the validator history program. Yeah. And can you just talk a bit about what the data side of this looks like today using just a normal stake pool versus how that changes and actually bringing some of that data on chain with StakeNet? Yeah. Yeah. When you're off chain, you can do, um, there's a ton of stuff you can do, but basically you're running some while one loop where it's just, I'm going to sleep for an hour and then I'm going to pull a bunch of stats. What are the voting credits on this validator? What's the APY or what's the commission? What's their IP address? Where are they located in the world? Like whatever inputs you have to your staking algorithm get run on this the server and then you're putting into a database. Some, some of the, the staking pools, some of that data is open source. Some of it's not. With StakeNet, basically the plan is to use Solana as the database for a lot of this data. A lot of this stuff available on chain, it's just like a snapshot at a point in time. So, oh, I want to, what's the validator's commission? It's, I can look at this and this is a current commission, but there's no like history of that on chain. I think the history component is very important to this. Essentially the way that it works in the current form is every validator, when there's a new validator detected, there will be an account created for it. This account creation is permissionless and basically it will create an e. I think it's, what is it? It's a few hundred epochs. I think it's three-ish years of data, two or three years of data that we can store on chain. And so you create this account. It has a circular buffer in it. So you're just going around the circle as time goes on and you can look backwards two-ish years. And it stores like the most important fields for determining the how a validator is performing. So it has historical commission, has the commission, it has the voting credits, which is like one of the main influences into the APY of the validator. I think there's an open research an open research question that we'd love contributors to help contribute to is if you have the IP address of every validator, how do you figure out its location in a very high accuracy way? Because some of the IP location databases are like out of date. So you can you can potentially figure out the location of validators. And then yes, yeah, like all this lives on chain. There's multiple years of it. So when you're actually running the stake pool delegation in the in this other program, you can be like, oh, has this validator increased commission past, uh, let's just say 50% in the last two years? If so, they are like blacklisted from the stake pool for two years. And yeah, there's like a ton of crazy stuff that you can do with this. So I think pretty excited. Yeah, this is really damn cool, honestly, because you said one thing that really got my interest going there, which was using Solana as the database. And that actually does feel like something that's only possible on Solana today. Uh, if you look at the Ethereum community, they have the exact opposite thing going on where you're pushing computation off chain with things like Uniswap X. Now they're discussing pushing events further off chain um, because they have a real cost. It's about 5 to 10% of a, the average transaction cost for a Uniswap trade, for example, is actually made up of just telling the user what happened. And so we're, they're now trying to push further things off chain. Whereas if you look at the Solana ecosystem, they're like, you know what, let's use the whole, let's use the chain as a database. I, I guess my question is, who pays for that? And are there, are there like, because there has to be real cost to posting all this data, I would imagine. So what does that look like? Yeah, it's not too bad. I think every validator... Every validator counts like a few bucks. You just allocate that once. Transactions are so cheap. I don't know the, the numbers off the top of my head. I think the most important thing is just the most expensive thing is like allocating the account ahead of time when a validator pops up. Yeah, so that makes sense. So I guess from a high level to me, it sounds like you use the validator history program to have this database of validator performance. And then the steward program will look at that, that performance history and say, okay, based on these criteria set by some parameters, maybe controlled by either the team or governance of a certain protocol, this is how we're going to delegate our stake across the current validator set. Is that an accurate summary of kind of what StakeNet is? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think there's the, I think the, the steward will be pretty specific to Jito's stake pool at first. And I guess a lot of this depends on if governance wants to adopt this or not. I think 
TBD on that. But I think like past V1, I think it's like other stake pools want to use this and they all have their own customized logic. And so I think V2 and would love to see these other stake pools contribute to this and other people in the ecosystem. Basically, like how do we make this a platform that's less specific to Jito and more broad for any stake pool? I think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. Like for instance, right now, Jito only stakes to Jito validators running the Jito Solana client. But what if you only, what if you want, I only want 10 per max 10% of stake in the stake pool to be in any country at a given point in time. Like how do you build that? Or there's some of these, some stake pools have these concepts of like gauges where you can, validators can buy the token to receive more stake. Or if you're a staker, you can do this directed staking thing where you are saying, hey, I want the stake to go to the specific validator. Like how do you actually build that into the stake pool and stake net? I think there's, there's a ton of room to customize this and it's almost like, it's like conditional staking in some sense where you can just have these conditions that kind of change the way that staking works. And I think it's a super powerful platform. I think we'll see, I think there's a good chance we'll see other stake pools on other chains start to adopt something like this. Yeah. Conditional staking, Lucas, we call those intense to 10x. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. But the one thing I actually don't get yet is keepers. Who are they and what's the role that they really play in this? Yeah. The keepers basically... They're helping to operate the two programs. So the, the main one that's running on mainnet right now is about our history program. There's a few instructions that they run and it's on this like periodic basis or when they see updates happen. But essentially what they're doing is there's they're copying. I was talking earlier about this moment in time thing where you can view this the validator's performance at a moment in time, but you and you can view that on chain actually. So the vote accounts and like the vote state of a validator is stored on chain. So one of the instructions that they're doing is essentially just copying that vote account into the validator history account. So they're just running like a bunch of like copies. So like you like parse it and copy it over. Another thing is that it's, there is some of the data that isn't available on chain. And there's some stuff in gossip that is gossiped out between all the nodes on the Solana network. So there's basically, they'll gossip out the version of software that they're running or like their IP address, which is used to, you can use to find the location or they'll gossip out votes. And there's a bunch of other stuff that they're sending between each other on this giant mesh network, but none of it is landing on chain. And so some of the keepers are actually uploading that data on chain as well. And because it's off chain, it's like an Oracle network in some sense, except for the fact that with an Oracle on price, you need a lot of people contributing to this because you don't really, you want to average it out and whatnot. Where a lot of this gossip data, it's actually signed, all the gossip data is signed by the validator that produced it. So you can actually upload this on chain. There's a built-in signature verification function on chain. So you can upload this gossip data, you can signature verify it, and you can basically assert that the validator release this data at this specific point in time. So in that sense, you don't really need, it's like kind of an Oracle network, but you don't really need like multiple people uploading different data because you're actually checking the signatures on all of it. So yeah, it's like a, a deep dive into what the keepers are doing there. There's some keepers on Steward as well that are running the scoring and all that as well. That's super interesting. I'm definitely excited to see StakeNet go live. That's like something very differentiated about what you guys are doing here versus Ethereum. So congrats on that. But I do want to shift the conversation a little bit to Solana and some more thematic questions because there's been a lot of talk around Solana's fee mechanism. So today you have the, the base fee that's fixed and then you have the variable priority fee whereby like half of it is burned. Do you like this model or do you think it could be improved upon? Yeah, it can definitely be approved upon. I think it's not the the priority portions of the priority fee being burned is not really like incentive compatible. It incentivizes these off-chain deals or like the Gito the Gito auction runs a like different process for tips that 100% of it goes to validators. If I'm a validator, do I want to do I want to take a priority fee that pays like one soul and only get half of it? Or do I want to go through a different system? Could be open source or could be a handshake deal or it's like, hey, just pay me one soul on the side and I'll prioritize your packet differently. 
So yeah, I think that needs to be fixed. I think it's like a pretty easy fix, to be honest. I don't see that being like super complex. I think the harder thing to fix, which is all doable, is the base fees and just like the making sure that the network is charging the right amount for compute units and like the resources that are being used in a transaction. Yeah. So you just mentioned something really interesting, which is like the idea of out of network payments. And I was curious if you could actually use the Jito client for this, because I could, in my head, what if I sent a bundle with only one transaction? Is that even possible? And if so, then can I just send a bundle of one transaction? Let's say I was willing to pay like one soul in a priority fee, then I could just pay 0.51 and the validator gets more, so they're happy because half the soul, half the priority fee is burned, and I'm happy because I just saved like forty nine percent. So, yeah. is that possible in, in the Gito client? And if so, are people do you know if that's happening today? It's yeah, that's definitely uh, true. I think I don't think it's gotten to the point where like people are like negotiating with validators on hey, we're gonna send it this way versus this way, and we all make more. I think it's just like the. Jito Solana and the block engine just offers like a better service for the network and for traders where you basically, if your transaction lands on chain, you're not paying for failed fees and it, anything that fails, it'll just roll back the state on. So you're not actually like loading these blocks up with failed transactions and wasting compute. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I tweeted out a chart. We'll put the link in the show notes, but it was of Solana priority fees. And the growth is, it's awesome to see. It's purely up and to the right, proving that people are like willing to pay more for transaction inclusion. And so I do feel like this is a really important thing to get right. But at the end of the day, I, I feel like priority fees need to be fixed when base fees get the same upgrade as well. Is that something that you feel? Uh, yeah, I think there's a few things that are going on right now to improve it. One is there's a new there's a new transaction scheduler that's coming out in V118. It seems to be pretty promising. I think that will probably be on testnet like January, written by one of the engineers, Andrew at Solana Labs. It seems to be very promising. I think it's a much, much better approach than the current one. And basically the benefit there is that the transactions will actually be there's basically a better ordering mechanism for priority fees in the scheduler. So it's actually trying to respect the priority fee when choosing the transaction to execute. And then there's a lot of research on base fees as well. One of the benefits of Gito's system is that it gives traders this, it gives them a strong like carrot, like a strong incentive to use it to where they get deterministic ordering on the transaction execution. The problem is that it's still super cheap to spam the network. So you're still seeing people use Jito and then send trades as well. And so I think that figuring out how to charge people more for more frequent accesses to state, I think is uh, pretty important. I think uh, Eugene at Umbra is starting to write more about this and bringing in some other researchers. And then there's been this huge discussion on the uh, PRAW fees, I don't know. I say P-Raw, PRA, or however you want to say it. But uh, there's been some discussion on that. And then, yeah, I think that's like a massive design space. I think super excited to see what people come out with on that. I think that will make the amount of the, the amount that you're charged will be way closer to the amount of fees. Sorry, the amount that you're charged will be way closer to the compute and like resources that you used on the network. So I think that's where like where the stick comes in. And it's like, hey, there's... One thing I've been thinking about, somewhat tangential, but what is the arbitrage? I don't know if there's a terminology for this, but what's like the arbitrage, like amplification factor on Solana, where if an arbitrage shows up, like how many succeed on that and then how many fail? And basically like, how do you, the more failures that you get in a closer period of time, you probably want to charge more for um, just because it's like using more resources. Yeah, I think it's, so it's a very large design space and I think one of the cooler research problems on Solana right now. That is pretty interesting. I'm I'm not sure if you saw LexNode on Twitter put out a thread like Ethereum versus Solana like a week ago or so. And I thought it was interesting, but there was something in there I didn't personally understand. He talked about how state rent is essentially charged to DAP teams and, and developers. Are you familiar with what he's talking about? And if so, can you explain it to me? I don't remember the specifics of the tweet. But I think one thing they're calling out is that Solana used to have this concept of rent and you could be, you can either pay rent or you can be rent exempt. 
And rent exempt is basically you have to transfer soul, a minimum balance of soul based on the size of the account to the account and kind of hold it in there. And if you transfer less than that minimum about balance, then you are paying rent. And eventually you're paying rent and then eventually that account gets cleaned up and disappears. That concept doesn't exist on Solana anymore. So everything has to be rent exempt. They just say that like a few months ago. I think it was pretty complicated and it's complicated code to manage. And then no one was really using it. It was just weird that accounts were just like randomly disappearing. But so I guess that's one thing. Another thing is that it really depends on the way that you write the program. If dApps are paying for it or users, I would say most users are paying the rent themselves. So when you create like the $2 I was talking about earlier to when you open a, a validator history account, whoever opens that account, it can be the validator themselves or like anyone else. They are the ones that are putting that money up. If you open an account on like MarginFi, Drift, Solen, like any of these other Solana-based projects, the user is paying the rent-exempt amount. I guess I'll double down on the idea of vote fees because that is a bit of an interesting concept. So if, maybe if you can describe, I guess his point was, if you're a larger validator, since it's stake weighted, you're going to propose more blocks and you get the vote fees from those blocks. And so the idea is that a smaller validator is still voting on every block because that's part of the consensus, but it's only winning, it's winning a smaller percentage of blocks. So like the net is over time, smaller validators are paying large, larger validators in vote fees. So I guess why on Solana does there need to be vote fees? Yeah, Dan, you put that one a lot more eloquently than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know like from an implementation level that votes are, um, they're just normal transactions and they take up the same number of resources. Actually, most of the transactions on Solana right now are votes. I think people try to be like, aha, we got you. These are all votes. It's, you know, everyone knows this, like, it's fine. It's just, they're just votes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're taking up the same resources and, um, I guess, yeah, like it's probably, there's probably some form of anti-Sybil in there where you can't just spin up, you can't just like slam a bunch of votes and earn money on it. Like you gotta, um, you have to pay for it a little bit, but I don't, it's not really something I thought about before. Like, why do they need fees? Probably something that after the podcast is over, I'll be like, oh, this is a good point. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we can scroll through the Solana research telegram chat and there's probably six six answers to why you need them in there. But I guess as a closing question here, I want to get your takeaway on the developer experience on Solana because one thing yeah. Ethereum has done super well is there's great developer tooling and it's it, it was just that's a lot of a first mover advantage. So what does what's like a huge pain point in Solana that just has to get cleaned up before you'd be comfortable going to a web two developer and be like, oh yeah, come on over, build on Solana. It's actually so easy. Yeah. I think Anchor has gotten way better than when we started. Even like mid 2021, like there wasn't an anchor Pi. Now there's like Python, JavaScript, TypeScript. There might even be like Go and other languages for Anchor. So I think Anchor has made the experience way better. Also, Anchor has just gotten way better as like a framework to use. And so, yeah, I think Anchor's gotten better. There's, I think once you, if you want to get started, you have to look at some open source code bases to understand how people structure their programs and like best practices. And I think that's getting better with open source code. And yeah, for a while, for instance, for a while we were using TypeScript and TypeScript to write our anchor tests. We all hate TypeScript so much. And it's, oh, there's this thing called Solana program test that you can use where it's like easy to like warp time and like overwrite accounts and test different scenarios. It's, oh, I remember using this at the beginning. So now it's starting like starting to figure out like, oh, there's these things that exist that maybe you don't know about that are like deep in the cracks that you need to discover. I think there's uh see, so yeah, I think the experience is way better. Anchor is amazing. There's definitely like some weird things that when you hit are hard to work around that require some creativity. So I guess for instance, like there's a uh, inside the virtual machine on Solana, there's like limited stack space. There's limited heap size. And so you have to figure out, oh, I'm doing this in a really dumb or inefficient way. Like I need to, I need to figure out like, how do I load this account more efficiently or modify this thing more efficiently? Or how do I avoid like blowing up my stack? 
And then another thing is just like the number of accounts that you pass in is limited. So figuring out like how to, it's just a different way of thinking about it compared to Ethereum. So yeah, you have to figure out like, how do I like structure all of these accounts and permissions and everything up front that requires a little more creativity. But I think once you like write a program or two, you get the gist of it. Love to hear that. It's definitely on the up and ups though, because ultimately that matters a ton. Yeah. No, I've been talking to, I've been talking to George just a little bit like, Hey, when are you going to make a foundry for Solana? Come on, come <laughs> on over go. here. There you go. That's Help what we us. need. So um, yeah, I think something like that would be amazing because I know that everyone raves about that on Ethereum. And I think having tools like that on Solana would be super helpful. I got one last question for you, Lucas. What yep. like app slash teams are you pretty hyped about that are building on Solana right now? That's for my own personal curiosity. I'm <laughs> like trying to try everything out, get myself familiar yeah. with the ecosystem. What should I be using? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of like super solid teams. I think one that I'm pretty excited about that's seen pretty good growth recently is Camino. It's like actively managed vaults and starting to get into borrow and lend and stuff like that. And they have these things called K tokens, which is essentially like your LP tokens. So you can start to do some, it's if you like, it's like the liquid staking version of providing liquidity somewhat. So I think and it's, yeah, it's basically actively managed vault. So I think the stuff they're doing is pretty cool. A lot of the newer teams that are popping up are like really good. I think Phoenix is pretty cool. If you just go to phoenix.trade and you just watch the order book, like all of that's happening on Solana in real time. It's just, it's just cool to see that is like updating that frequently. And there's like the spreads are like pretty tight on there. And there's actually a lot of volume on there and like really good capital efficiency. Two great suggestions, honestly. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, there's, for better or for worse, incentive DEXs play a role in Ethereum DeFi. And so it'll be really interesting to see if the direction the Camino team goes with their token. I have no idea what they're trying to do, but definitely something interesting is, especially for like LSTs, if you look at Lido's involvement with Curve, that was huge. That's There's still billions of dollars of staked ETH liquidity within yeah. Curve. So it's interesting to think about. Yeah, there's some there's some cool, uh, real quick, there's some, I don't want to leak too much of their alpha, but there's some new cool strategies that are coming out that are looking pretty promising. Oh, that's super cool. That's super cool. I'll let them take the rest. Maybe we'll have, to get the Camino, we'll have to get the Camino team on here to chat with us yeah. about it. But Lucas, man, congrats on all the su- success that you and Gito have been having. I know this was a huge time and a huge uh, process in the making. You guys put a ton of hard work in this. And I think before the podcast, you said it's weight off your shoulders, but it's really just the beginnings. We'll be on, we'll be on the lookout for the, the next developments. And uh, yeah, super excited personally for the launch of StakeNet, man. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, always great to come on here. Awesome. awesome. Cheers. Take it easy, Lucas. Thanks, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.